Hello and welcome to WISMED On Call, a podcast by the Wisconsin Medical Society that looks at some of the top issues affecting patients and the practice of medicine in Wisconsin. I'm your host, John Rather, General Counsel for the Society, and joining me today is Tom Shorter. Tom is a shareholder attorney at Godfrey and & Kahn and chair of their healthcare team. Tom represents hospitals, physician groups, and related organizations on a wide variety of topics, including regulatory issues, corporate law, and employment issues. Tom, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, John. This episode is part of a special financial literacy series, What I Wish I Knew, aimed at answering questions from young physicians, residents, and medical students about topics that may not be covered in medical school. Today, we're going to be talking about physician employment contracts. There may be no more mystifying part of moving into the full-time world than the contract. Tom, you have a wealth of experience on both sides of this proverbial coin. Let's see if we can demystify this topic a bit. But before we begin, because Tom and I are both attorneys, I want to remind folks listening that nothing in this podcast should be construed as legal advice. So Tom, let's start with the very basics. Why do physicians have employment contracts? I don't have one. The majority of people working in this country don't have one. What makes physicians different? It's an interesting question, John, and it's one that comes up a fair amount uh, because it is actually quite common for physicians to have employment contracts. And in many regards, I will tell you, most physicians uh, have employment contracts. The reason most physicians have contracts really relates to a number of the requirements uh, that apply to physicians relative to their job duties, their licensure requirements, um, and um, what types of restrictions may be imposed upon them related to that employment. And this really uh, does drive most healthcare systems, if they're the employer or large physician groups, to want to have a physician employment contract for insurance purposes for other areas where the parties want to make sure that they have a clear understanding of the of the nature of the terms of employment. So we know it's beneficial to the employers, the health systems, because they need it for documentation, different compliance programs, things like that. Is it also beneficial for physicians in certain respects? In, in very many ways it is. Um, and it's one of the reasons why I strongly encourage physicians to consider the employment contract path as one that's positive for them as well. It's often viewed by physicians as just something the systems are seeking to protect themselves, but in, in actuality, the contract can protect physicians, can make obligations clear, and also open up opportunities for them to ensure that in the event that employment relationship comes to an end, they understand exactly how that's gonna happen who's responsible for certain things, which we may talk about in a bit, like tail insurance or other items that are very important for physician protection. So again, I would tell you, it's as equally beneficial for the physician as it is for the employer. So how does it change that that fundamental employment relationship from what most of us are, which is called at-will employment in the state, basically meaning the employer can fire you or you can quit at any time. How does the contract change that fundamental relationship? The, the contract begins to, and does in fact, put in place the actual terms. So understanding how somebody can actually end employment uh, for a physician is explicitly put into most employment contracts. You're right, John, 
most of us uh, are, do in fact sit in an at-will status and, and that effectively means that people can be you know, hired, fired uh, for really any reason that's not prohibited by a federal or state law. The contract adds a layer to that and says, here are the kinds of circumstances where you can be terminated and how and what will happen in that termination. It's really adding definition and in many ways, uh, restrictions around how that can actually occur. Or in some cases, a defined process, even if not more restrictive, because some of us hear employment contract and we think, I can't be fired unless I do X. I have some type of protected status. Many of these contracts might say that you could still be fired for any reason, as long as it's a legal reason. Um, it's just that there's an additional notice provision or something like that. So when we hear employment contract, we really do need to dig deeper to understand whether it's providing a layer of protection or if it just means that there's additional steps you have to go through before ending the relationship, right? That's a very good description of it, John. I think that is right. And it's one of the reasons why it's so important to fully review and read the employment contract because you can see both variations out there, including one that's much more process versus one that's both process and defining what are the types of circumstances where employment may be able to be terminated. Great. So before we start getting into contracts themselves, let's step back a little bit. Can you walk me through the process between when a physician and an employer decide that they want to work together and when the ink is actually dry on the contract? What is that discussion? What are those steps? The steps t in, a, in a typical uh, scenario where a physician is going to be brought in as an employee often, frankly, start with physician recruiters or, or another uh, portion of the or a group within the employer that is seeking out highly skilled physicians with certain skills, right? They're looking for, for physicians to fill their needs from an employment perspective. And a lot of that early discussion is getting to know one another, right? This is before the employment contract process. Does the physician have the fit, the skills, the personality? And likewise for the physician, it's is this the type of an employer that the culture works, the you know the the terms of, or the type of work rather is going to be something I'm you know interested in. Frankly, it's really once you get through that phase that the employment contract starts to surface as a as a concept or a step. Typically, an employer will be responsible for preparing the employment contract. They will prepare uh, a version to be sent and shared with the physician as really their offer of employment. Um, it will come across and it will contain whatever terms, and we're going to spend, I think, a little bit of time today talking more about those kinds of terms, but addressing things like, when do you start? How much are you going to be paid? What are the benefits? Uh, those are often t items that will be referenced or explicitly contained within the physician uh, employment contract. So is that the first time in many circumstances that a physician will see those types of details in writing? For some that may be. I have uh, certainly run into lots of circumstances where an employer will either verbally or in some other more uh, informal uh, mechanism convey to the physician, this is what we pay. This is what our benefits look like. Um, so it, it may be that a physician gets some of that information early on, 
But that is definitely the first time you're going to hear things like, here's what happens in a termination. Those are very rarely things that the employer will talk to a prospective physician employee about until the point at which an employment contract's been presented. Okay. So I'm a resident. I'm about to graduate, go out, get my first, you know, quote unquote, real full-time job. What are some of the the processes, the, the due diligence that I should be doing when I look at offers I'm getting? There are a lot of areas that should be explored. And this is one where I think many physicians, particularly those that may be taking their first position, um, do not spend enough time doing. And these are things like understanding uh, where the non-clinical expectations are. Every system is a little bit different in terms of the non-clinical expectations that they may have of their employed physicians. What's the culture like? Um, And I would tell um, and do tell the physicians that I represent to have an opportunity to speak with some of the physicians who are already employed there. And, And in some cases, maybe even some physicians who used to be employed there. Those are all mechanisms by which you can really begin to understand a bit about the culture of the organization. And that's gonna be important uh, from an employment perspective. There are also other areas, um, I think, you know, what's the leadership team like, having an opportunity to interact with them um, so that you understand both from a clinical leadership side, but for those going to large systems what the administrative leadership is like and their supportive approach to physicians that are employed in the system. Documentation practices, um, and by that I'm in particular talking and thinking about what is your medical records responsibilities going to look like? Is it a system that's fully integrated with uh, electronic healthcare record systems or is it a smaller uh, physician group that is not? How are those things going to play into day-to-day employment? Those are all trying to get around the idea of, are you going to feel comfortable and is it going to feel as a good fit as a place to spend several years, if not your career, uh, as an employee? I think those you hit all the major ones that I hear when I talk to physicians about, gee, I wish I'd thought of these things at the front end. The other one that I've heard more lately is, do I have mentors? within that system. You know, I've come out of residency where I had this layer of support. I still want that type of structure. And who's going to be that? Do they assign mentors or how can I naturally find it? And it goes back to what you said about culture as well. Are these the types of questions you ask after you've seen the contract or or preferably before? Typically, I would ask them before. These are really the, the, the front end conversations. And Many, many times you may be able to have some of these items addressed or given through the physician recruiters, but in most cases, it's really in getting to interact with some of the physicians themselves or others that are are in that group or in that specialty area. And they're all questions that absolutely should be asked. I mean, where you're going in as a physician to your first employment, um, it really, the value, I guess I should say, of a mentor relationship cannot be overstated. That, that is a huge towards long-term success. And that's really something you want to be thinking about before you are ever putting your head into the details of an employment contract and what you want to see or not see in that. 
it can really seem like we're getting aside and talking about some of this stuff and when we're supposed to be talking about contracts. But in this age where we talk about building physician resiliency and preventing burnout, um, having that due diligence done before you get to the contracting stage is as important as what the words on that contract uh, page say, in my opinion. It's going to make as much, if not more, difference in your professional success than anything you agree to in writing. I think that's absolutely true. And, and, and sometimes we run into situations where we'll see that early discussion around culture, around fit, and how the administration or, or other leadership might handle themselves. And then we see a very different theme in the contract. And that's a flag in my mind where I have spoken with a physician and the description of here's what I believe I'm stepping into as an employment relationship. I'm really excited about it. Here's what I heard. And sometimes we don't see that in the document. Yeah, so let's get into the document a little bit. Um, can, let's start with a basic rundown. What are some of the major things that you'd expect to see in pretty much all physician employment contracts? There are a number of areas that are pretty standard. Um, and I, I, I do say that with this caveat. Every employment contract is going to be a little bit different. Absolutely. Some, some employers take a, a very, uh, what I will call, prolific approach. So they have many, many, many pages of an employment contract. And some take a somewhat more informal uh, approach to it where it's limited to a few pages. But that said, the areas we typically see in an employment contract, scope of services, which is also another way of saying what are your duties. So what is going to be required of day-to-day -day practice, practice management, treatment, non-clinical responsibilities. These are all things that can come into the scope of services and duties section. And it is important because you want to understand before you sign the employment contract all of the things that are going to be asked of you and not have that be a surprise for sure. Other, of course, typical areas, compensation, of course. This is a standard piece, and that can be whether it's a compensation formula and methodology, is it a straight salary-based type compensation? There's a myriad of options that are out there, but it should and really needs to be addressed directly in the employment contract itself. Requirements and standards, um, which is a, another way of saying the kinds of requirements that are going to apply from licensure to board certification to, you know, the qualifications side of the, of the contract that are going to apply to the physician. So this is, again, important because it's an opportunity to make sure both the physician and, frankly, the employer understand this is what we expect. You have to have these and maintain, not only have them, but maintain them throughout the duration of the employment arrangement. So again, uh, an important uh, standards type clause. Term um, and termination, and let me parse those out separately because there really are uh, two separate concepts. Term is really the length of your employment. So it's, you know, sometimes it could be a one year, two year, three year term of employment with all sorts of options for either automatic renewal in one year segments or, or otherwise. But that's what we mean when we talk about term. 
And we seem to be seeing a little less of that definite, like you would think of in, let's say, a sports contract, you know, four years, $40 million. You don't see that as often in physician contracts, especially with younger physicians. It tends to be more indefinite term, but here's the conditions under which we're going to end the relationship instead of saying you are employed for X number of years unless this happens, right? That's right, John. It, 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 and this is a good area to highlight that that variety that we will see and we do see in employment contracts. The trend is to move more towards the direction that you're you're talking about, which is welcome, thank you for being our employee and you're employed until we decide or you decide or some other trigger ends that arrangement. We do still see sometimes, um, again, a, a specific, but the trend is certainly to, to leave it more open-ended on the term. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the termination provisions, which are another area, and it's one that is extremely important for physicians to understand, and it is sometimes surprising for physicians to understand that that is in the contract because it is already talking about the potential ending of the relationship. Those provisions can go anywhere from, as you talked about earlier, John, the idea that the employer can end it for any reason that's not illegal um, and really be more process-oriented to scenarios where it's explicit. If you engage in the following types of behavior, your employment will be terminated, fraud, crime, these types of triggering events. But it can also go to, if you lose your license, you're going to lose your employment. If you're no longer on the medical staff or other potential triggers, those are all the kinds of things that get typically included in a termination section. And with a lot of these, the key tends to be clarity, right? You want both sides to understand what they're signing up for, the physician and the employer. For example, when we talk about um, discipline or termination, We look for, are there objective standards versus subjective, that it's based on what one person thinks or their values? Or if if it references a policy, can I look at that policy? And does it spell out what standards or what process my conduct is going to be judged by? Um, And and you raise a very important issue, John, and it's one that routinely in advising physicians we point out, and that is many employers will take the position that they are able to terminate you for any of the violations of policies and they actually commonly don't give the full policy book to the physician on uh, on their entry into employment but it is a question that should be asked because if you're agreeing in a contract that they can end your employment for a violation of a policy and you've never seen the policy you don't really have yet a good understanding of the nature of their termination rights, and you should spend the time to understand that and ask questions about it because there may may not be real clear. Yeah, this is your opportunity to ask those questions. Um, Absolutely. Once you start working, you're already subject to them, right? Absolutely right. Um, So with that in mind, let's talk about what are some provisions that we should be especially careful to look for that... Um, if they're in there, we really want to make sure we understand them or that they might be a source of negotiation. Sure, sure. Well, we, we've already started hitting on one, and that is termination. I mean, understanding, right. of course, the nature of what, what can trigger a termination, and frankly, in some circumstances where the physician is going to have rights 
for termination. It's something to be thought through, uh, considered. Everyone's situation is unique. Uh, that's it, a it's an area that is of particular importance, and and time should be spent understanding it very clearly. Other other items uh, that we've talked about um, that are it, it, you know very important scope of services. Um, I will as an example, what level of the non-clinical side, we talked a little bit about that, what level of requirements are going to apply there? I think I've seen, I uh, have seen physicians get surprised by this down the road where their perspective is, well, wait a minute, that's not what I signed up for. And in reality, the contract includes provisions that pretty clearly set forth what those non-clinical duties are going to be. So it makes it harder to, to your point before, John, it sure makes it harder to deal with that issue later when it's already been agreed to because the ink has been put on the agreement versus a conversation up front that um, the employer might actually say, gosh, that's standard language. We don't really intend for you to have to do that. We would be willing to remove it. That's a good conversation piece. Um, other areas that are of significant importance um, relate to restrictions on outside employment, the, the, the um, moonlighting concept. It, it comes up a fair amount for physicians, and there's a wide variety of reactions by employers. Larger systems tend to be less inclined to allow this to happen. Um, and what would it, be some reasons an employer wouldn't want a physician to do extra work on their own time? Th there's a, a probably a variety of them, but the ones that come to the top, John, on those in this in the scenarios I have seen are where an employer is concerned that when a physician goes off and does work on their own time, it's not part of their schedule, they're doing it on their own, because that physician is attached to the organization itself, that they're that having the physician moonlight in that fashion creates either actual fiscal risks or organizational reputational risks. It's something that um, just by the nature of that person's primary job being as a physician for that you know that system, they want to at least have the ability to say no, which means they typically will include language that it at least requires some approval from the system to do it, if not sometimes just outright prohibiting it. And this seems to be one of those areas where reasonable heads can get together on language that works. If I'm an entrepreneurial physician, for example, and I'm working on an app that I, I'm working with some buddies on and I may eventually want to take the market and I want to make sure that my employer's okay with that, just being upfront with them. The carve-outs in that particular area tend to be pretty reasonable, right, Tom? Absolutely, John. And that is, again, the, I think one of the reasons we're pointing out that this is an important provision and section of the contract to review is that the time for that carve-out, the time for that discussion, is before the ink is on the document. Yeah. It's really critical to do that. And, and when physicians approach an employer and 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 articulate the rationale for why they they want to be able to be free to do that and in some cases articulate the willingness to not have that be subjected to coverage under the insurance that the employer is carrying in other words the physician may be addressing whatever fiscal risks through insurance they carry on their own you can negotiate that yeah, it may be and that you can do this outside work, but you're going to have to go get your own insurance coverage for exactly it. Exactly right. That's exactly right. 
So again, there's lots of areas here where it's important to understand it. It's also important to ask questions and raise it, particularly if you're a, a, a physician who is very interested in having at least some avenues outside of your employment to pursue, either entrepreneurial side, as you say, John, which we see happening more and more, or other types of, of, of work that it might you know, be viewed as somehow uh, inconsistent with the terms of the employment contract for you to do so. Yeah, maybe you just want to take an extra chunk out of those hundreds of thousands of dollars in student loans that are all too common nowadays by picking up some extra shifts somewhere. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And again, it's uh, we see lots of circumstances where an employer will allow it, but it's something that has to be addressed up front. So zooming out for a second, uh, when we hear about employment relationships, one of the classic concerns um, has been that it can relate to the level of medical judgment, independence of the medical staff, and that if I'm employed, that somehow it changes my level of independence. How is that accounted for, if it is, within employment contracts? Some are explicit. I mean, it's an important issue, and I'm glad you've raised it, John. It's Some are actually very explicit about this, and I have seen that where uh, the employment contract may address you know, address this issue through a provision that makes clear that the physician still re retains their independent judgment and their discretion to, to make the decisions that they need to in the best interest of the patients. Typically, it's been coming up more and more in light of and tied to referrals. There is language that exists uh, within the Stark Law, which is a podcast probably for a whole <laughs> other day, John, yeah. but where it allows employers in some context to say to their employed physicians, we need and want you to refer to specialists within our system. But one of the explicit legal requirements associated with that is that the physician needs to understand and be told that they still retain their independent discretion and control. And so that may mean sometimes the answer is they're not going to follow that contractual provision. And that's a matter of law. And so that's one of the things as employers have large, certainly larger system employers have moved more in the direction of being explicit about the referral language. It's brought forth more often that idea of independent judgment. So when we talk about assessing the level of independent judgment you retain and where it's documented so that you can rely upon it. You have the employment contract. You have that due diligence that was done before. That's a big part of the culture, right? Um, what type of policies, what type of unspoken expectations exist. And the other place is probably the medical staff bylaws, right? Because that's where the medical staff lays out its own governance and some of its independent operations. That is absolutely right. And the point you're raising, John, is a very, very important one. In the list of documents and things that are helpful to see before you sign the employment contract is the medical staff bylaws that you may be subjected to if it's a large system that you're going to be employed by and you're going to need to be a member of that medical staff. You should understand what those medical staff requirements include. And often there are rules and regulations of the medical staff that may all be incorporated by reference into the employment contract itself. It's a common place, for example, for call. What are the call requirements? They may not surface explicitly in the employment contract. They may actually be by reference in the employment contract to the medical staff 
bylaws and the rules and regs of the medical staff. So we're adding more and more homework to the yes. young physician's list of what they should look at ahead of time, but it's a big decision to be made and it deserves that type of homework. Now, for those physicians that are willing to roll up their sleeves and get into this, contracts can be read by any reasonable person. I mean, they have to be reasonably written by law. But when I get a call from a physician that's graduating residency looking at these offers, nine times out of 10, I'm going to say, hey, it would be money well spent if you consider getting an attorney to look at it. Um, it one of those attorneys can be you, Tom, or any number of other people especially for those physicians that aren't willing to get into this level of detail though, that want the one-page sheet and the rest to be handled, absolutely you need to get an attorney involved, in my opinion. Um, are there circumstances when it moves from a, it'd be nice to have an attorney to you better have an attorney look at it? I think that as the employment contract gets more complex, it really does make sense because even, even as reasonable minds can read a document and understand the words that may be written on there, there are a number of legal principles, as you know, John, that may not surface explicitly in a contract, but they're a matter of case law within the jurisdiction that we operate. You know, enforceability. If I read a non-compete restriction that says the restriction is for five years, well, I understand the words on the page, but I don't have the context or knowledge, if I'm not a lawyer, to understand that that's illegal in the state of Wisconsin. So it's a very good idea, I think, because it is more than just reading the words. It's understanding the context, and there's the experience. You've looked at a lot of employment contracts for physicians, John, so have I. Understand what is common, what is not common, isn't just about the words that are on the paper. It's the context of experience, understanding, and seeing they're asking for a lot more than most employers would. This isn't something you should agree to. That's the value you receive by ultimately pulling in uh, legal counsel. And speaking of that value, one of the things we're excited to be working on here at the Medical Society is the ability to bring that option for you to go get an attorney to help you through the process um, at a decreased rate. We're working with a few select law firms in the state, uh, one of them being yours, Tom, to provide uh, a set fee um, and in fact, a discounted fee for young physicians even, um, to get that uh, top level review, some basic feedback, not going to negotiate and go in and you know actually negotiate for you, but at least help educate you as to what's in there and the, what the significance of it is. Um, I want to thank you and uh, we'll have a bigger announcement in the future with a few other partners. Uh, I think that's going to be really great for our members moving forward. Well, we're pleased to be able to participate in that program with the Wisconsin Medical Society, John, and I view it very much as a practitioner who is exclusively in the area of healthcare that I want physicians, particularly new physicians that are entering into this field, to feel like they have a mechanism to do so with comfort and understanding and uh, to be able to partner with them through that process. So we've been alluding to this uh, a lot, and that's talking about the end game. Um, it's not something you necessarily are that excited to think about when you're just getting into work, but uh, I have a colleague, for example, who talks about physician contracts as being a professional prenup. You know, when you're getting engaged, unfortunately, you've got to think about the divorce, and that's one of the biggest parts of these contracts. So what are some of the factors that we should think about or look for in an employment contract regarding termination? There are a number of issues that are of critical importance 
and again, as we referenced earlier in this conversation, the employment agreement is in many ways exactly what you just talked about, that sort of professional prenup. It is a document that can explicitly lay out a process for termination, um, but it also can define and, and put forth obligations on the two parties that continue to live on after the end of that employment arrangement and understanding what that world is going to look like and what your legal obligations are, what the employer's legal obligations are after that termination is incredibly important. So a number of the ones that we see as uh, typical um, uh, items to understand for how the termination um, uh, may actually occur, we've talked a little bit about um, um, the grounds for the termination or what, what can even trigger it in the first instance um, and understanding whether or not the employer is trying to terminate that arrangement for something that's covered or not or the physician is wanting to terminate that and end that arrangement and maybe take a different type of a position. Yeah, before you quit, it'd be helpful to look at your contract and make sure you understand what process you need to go through in order to tender your resignation. It, absolutely. I think if, if, the, if an, a termination or, and you know, really the ending of that employment relationship is in the heads of anybody involved in that process, I sure hope they are doing two things reviewing their employment contract and calling legal counsel, whether you're on the employer side or the employee side, because parties do often forget, frankly, the terms. They sign the deal, they uh, put it in a file or someplace that may, they may not recall where they put it, but to be able to have that and look at it before decisions are made so that they're not made in error is a really critical, very, very critical point. Other areas that I think are, um, you know, important, uh, we uh, talked a little bit about tail coverage. So this is really the issue of who's responsible for, for the uh, malpractice insurance premiums for that period of time that the physician was employed by that employer. There are means contractually to shift responsibility. Is it the employer? Should they be paying for tail insurance? Should the physician be paying for it? These are things that should and need to be addressed. Every physician, every physician should be looking for that specific issue um, when they're reviewing a draft of the employment contract because having that insurance in place is a, prof you know, is a, a peace of mind, if not a, you know, ultimately a professional requirement. Yeah, it is a requirement in this state in order to practice medicine, you must have malpractice insurance. And there's some great benefits Absolutely. of that that we can go into, um, and I'll go into too long. But when you end the, the relationship, understanding what needs to be done to make sure that insurance coverage continues for the, par for the portion of time you were there. Absolutely right, John. And, and as you know, it's not an insignificant cost item. Right. It, 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 because malpractice insurance is... Uh, Costly, although I think Wisconsin's a, a very good state for 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 uh, costs of malpractice insurance relative to others, it still is not insignificant, and physicians should not be caught off guard on that issue. The one that doesn't seem to come up much in contracts, but seems to come up when I talk to physicians that catches them off guard is um, who's going to tell the patients, and how is that care going to be? transitioned when the physician walks out the door. You know, physicians in this state have an absolute duty 
not to abandon their patients. They have to provide 30 days minimum transition period. And there can be a little bit of a, a tug of war over, is that the physician's patient or the, the employer's patient? How can we account for that in a contract? Well, it's a, it's a very important point. The law is clear in Wisconsin, certainly on this uh, aspect. And so that patient notification requirement is, is, is absolute. It left outside of the contract, it is most assuredly you know, ambiguous. Somebody has that obligation, and I think if it's not been you know, made clear, the physician is the one who is licensed, who you know, can find themselves in probably the, the most trouble around patient notification failures. Um, and so it's absolutely something to try to address through that process. Not all employers are, are um, as willing to enter into some discussions about that, but I would encourage physicians to enter into that discussion. And, and those, try to define it. And those discussions are useful, Tom, even if we don't end up with it being spelled out in the contract, because every employer is a little different in that regard. By having that discussion, you can get a feel for how do they tend to handle it? Do they have policies on it? It's part of that culture due diligence as well. That is absolutely right and, and a very, very good point. To understand how they've dealt with that in the past, which is you and I talked earlier on about part of that culture, investigation, and diligence, talking to a couple of physicians who have left the system. How did it get handled in their case? What, what was their you know, walk away um, in terms of how that uh, actually went down? That's important to understand. And it does, you, by drawing that discussion, you're gonna get some flavor around that. But it's an important issue that physicians need to be aware of, both the law, the point that you raised, which is really critical so that they don't find themselves, you know, in a a difficult position um, vis-a-vis that legal requirement, um, and then also understanding how the employer looks at it. The last probably big one when it comes to termination to think about is restrictive covenants, which often come in the form of non-compete agreements. Um, What does a typical non-compete look like in this state? So typically in Wisconsin, a non-compete, um, uh, and, and there is statutory language on this, so this is, is also, again, the context that lawyers bring to the table as part of understanding your employment contract. But typically in Wisconsin, a, a, a restrictive covenant really contains a few different main areas. One, which is restrictions on an ability for a physician to work in competition with the former employer um, for a period of time. Um, Wisconsin has limitations on how extreme, uh, you know, you could imagine that someone might say, I'd prefer you never compete with me. That is illegal and unenforceable in Wisconsin. Wisconsin's law limits uh, the application of a non-compete to the maximum of two years in duration and the, the other limitations have to be connected to how broad the geography, for example, of that physician's practice was. If they were in one community and they are leaving that community and going and would not be seeing any of the same type of patients, that's typically viewed as an unreasonable and unenforceable non-compete clause. But, but that's one potential area. There are restrictive covenants that relate generally to confidentiality of information that may have uh, come into the possession of the physician. And I'm not just talking about patient records. Patient records in this industry, of course, are highly regulated anyway. 
but there's other confidential information that may come into the possession of physicians because of leadership roles they took on. And those are not unusual to see that in the context of an employment agreement, to restrict the ability of the physician to use that information or even to possess it in any way after the employment uh, came to an end. So one of the things that you hear myths out there is that non-competes are not enforceable in Wisconsin or they're not enforceable when it comes to physicians in Wisconsin. That's not true, is it, Tom? That is not true, John. Uh, Wisconsin has a number of cases, in, in, in fact, cases that are specifically, you know, enforcement of a non-compete on a physician where they've been upheld. In other words, the non-compete is enforced and the court will enforce the terms of that non-compete. So that is not a perspective to take in Wisconsin. There are other jurisdictions, i.e. other states, where that law may differ a little bit. And so physicians who may be coming out for their first job uh, ever, understanding what that restrictive covenant means and what state you are in is extremely important. It is a matter exclusively in the purview of state law, not federal law. And so every state, of course, can be different. And especially if you're going to be in a practice that maybe involves multiple states, Uh, or you're going to be doing some locums work or something like that, then you've got to account for multiple states. Again, that's one where you might consider getting an attorney involved because- Complexity goes up significantly under that circumstance. Absolutely. So restrictive covenants like non-competes can be enforceable in Wisconsin, are not always enforceable in Wisconsin. They have to be reasonable. There's, There's limitations on how broad they can be or how long they can be. So it really depends on the specifics of that clause. Um, are they negotiable? Will an employer work with you on them? That's, it's a, again, a good, very good question. Um, on the front end, yes, of course, right? Like all of these provisions, uh, once the ink is dry, uh, or, um, though they're, they're gonna be very difficult to negotiate. But if, if a non-compete is within the draft employment contract that's presented, that is the time to negotiate. That is the time to address it. And I know that feels awkward. When you're coming into a new job to already be talking about and negotiating over what does the world look like when I leave this job and I'm not your employee anymore is uh, oftentimes an awkward conversation. It's why for some physicians they may choose to have a lawyer do those discussions on their behalf. Um, but it's extremely important because it may be limitations on how broad the geography is. Um, it may actually contain provisions that, act, that, that address how there may be a way for a financial resolution that makes the non-compete go away, mm-hmm. but it requires a financial payment or some other terms. Those are all very viable options to be negotiated some employers may not want to negotiate that. They may, they may hold fast on their requirements, but it can be negotiated. Yeah, and the theme of all of this is the worst possible time to negotiate is when you want to leave. Absolutely right, because you've already agreed to those terms, and at that point, they are not thinking about how do they convince you to sign the paper and come help them and be part of that, that system. They're already displeased in all likelihood because you're no longer going to be part of that system for one reason or another. Right. If there's any questions on those types of things, um, the Medical Society has resources specific to restrictive covenants. 
There's always attorneys that we can talk to. Um, that's definitely an issue that needs to be looked at very closely in any employment contract. Uh, let's shift gears just a little bit, Tom. Can physicians negotiate a contract in practice? I mean, we know contracts can be negotiated, but are employers willing to? Um, they are, and I, I actually think that they're more willing to negotiate it than most uh, individuals may think. Oftentimes, particularly those that may be getting their first position, feel like I'm frankly thankful I'm being offered a position and so I can't possibly negotiate over a provision of what that's going to look like and that's simply not true. Um, we see lots of opportunity for that discussion to be able to be had and in fact many employers do operate sometimes on pretty standard employment contracts. They're employing lots of people and so they tend to use the same type of terms and conditions of employment for each individual coming in and sometimes they're just not applicable. And so again, the fact that you're, you're reading through the employment contract, that you may have worked with legal counsel to understand the types of items that are going to be uh, important and maybe need to be changed to reflect the kind of arrangement that the physician wants. Um, those I think are uh, all items that should be brought up and frankly I've always taken the position show the employer that you're actually paying attention to detail. You're going to read what they present to you and you're going to understand your obligations and intend to live by them so want to have a detailed discussion about it. I, I think it should not be viewed as a negative response to say I'd like to at least discuss some of the provisions in here or have questions about them or seek clarification, which all ultimately frankly lead to some negotiation. Yeah, the, the two things that stick out to me when we talk about negotiation are one, you're an individual. You're being recruited because of who you are as an individual. And so the contract should reflect you as an individual, your circumstances. So like you said, Tom, if there's something in there that just doesn't apply to you, why is it in there? Um, and asking the questions why, not saying necessarily take it out, but help, understand, help me understand as a physician why it needs to be in there, approaching it that way. And the other part of it too, it goes along the same lines, asking the questions, expressing to them not on a give or take this contract provision needs to come out or I won't agree to this, but one strategy, and again we can't give advice, but one strategy is here's my concern, here's my confusion, how can you help me address these? Can you educate me? Can we address it by modifying the contract? Can we do something else to make me as the physician feel more comfortable about this portion of the contract that's confusing or concerning me? And that helps strengthen, I think, the relationship as well, hopefully. Um, keeps it from being um, as adversarial of a relationship, too. I think that's very well put, John. It's, it's a way to have that conversation. And you will inevitably continue to gain information through that conversation about other things that you may have further questions about. Um, it, and again, you know, it doesn't have to be couched in a way that makes it seem like it's an adversarial type of a negotiation, but rather a discussion about what it, this means and a desire for the potential you know, employed physician to be able to take seriously all the obligations that they are agreeing to, and that should be viewed as very positive. 
So what are some strategies for approaching contract negotiation if, you, if you're a young physician? I think the, the way to start that process is to obviously do the first step, which is to read that was presented to you. Do not agree to things on the spot. If you are presented with a job offer and they say, you know, John, we'd love to have you. Here's the contract. We're sitting together in the room and why don't you sign this and then you can later go home and read it and let us know if you have questions. I would advise against that. Be gracious and thankful that uh, for the opportunity to have the offer. Suggest that you'd like to have some time to, to review it, understand it, um, and reflect upon it. And then make that decision of not only just reading it, uh, but also engaging with legal counsel to be able to help you at least understand what is in front of you. It may be that legal counsel is not going to appear, you know, formally out front in, in front of the physician and be involved directly in the negotiation process, but to have that guidance and understanding about the meaning of it, that's just extremely important. And that's really the thrust of the idea behind the program the Medical Society is putting together. Yeah, to lower that threshold so that if you're concerned about what you're looking at, it's not as scary to go find the help to demystify it for you. And, and the theme in all of this, Tom, seems to be doing our homework. You know, whether you're going to do it yourself or get an attorney. And, you know, I'm biased, obviously, as, you, as are you that attorneys are helpful. Um, but making sure you understand it and not um, and even as an attorney, I have to resist this, is just glazing over certain things as boilerplate and assuming that they're of no real significance. Doing the homework and making sure you understand every sentence in that contract, understanding how they actually get uh, enforced or how they play out by having done your culture due diligence ahead of time, that's one of your biggest strengths in negotiation, right? Knowledge is power. Oh, for sure. For sure, understanding that, and that's again, that's that's the the benefit of being able to have that discussion behind the scenes with legal counsel. I think a very good example of of that kind of knowledge that becomes power is there may be provisions in the employment contract that, by for well for legal reasons or as a practical matter in employment, that the employer is never going to agree to that change. They can't. They are prohibited from doing that. I would rather have a physician I'm working with know that and not step into the issue where the employer is forced to just say, well, I'm sorry, you want us to change something that we're legally required to do. This may not be a good arrangement. You know, you can avoid that sort of circumstance from coming up. It's that knowledge is power, as you put it, I think. So some are going to look at us and say, I can't believe it took you long, this long to get to this subject. But when we're talking about employment contracts, a lot of the issues revolve around compensation. And no two compensation agreements nowadays tend to look the same, especially with uh, different metrics, whether it be quality or productivity. Um, what are some factors that physicians should think about when they look at that compensation section of an agreement? The compensation section uh, um, obviously is of great importance. Um, and in fact, I will say most of the clients I work with, it's probably the section they go to first it's the section they spend the most time thinking about. and um, That's not unique to doctors, though, no, either. It's the first that, place I would go, too. <laughs> that's a good point. Good point. Um, and it is a really important one. So it's not that, that uh, people shouldn't be spending that time. It, it is very much so. The mechanisms by which a physician will be compensated vary greatly. It's important to understand 
that particularly in healthcare, there are some legal guardrails that exist that other industries simply do not have. And that is uh, important, whether that be um, the Stark Law um, requirements that physicians be paid fair market value for the types of services that they provide or the anti-kickback statute with similar uh, requirements. And those exist and physicians should understand that. There is uh, not a, an ability for uh, an employer or a health system to go to any number that the physician may want. It's simply not permitted by law. So when you hear your employer say, sorry, that's just not within the band of what we can do, it, there is some reason they're saying that. It's, it might also be influenced by they just don't want to pay you that much, but in some circumstances, they're putting their legal regulatory compliance at risk if they have too big of outliers. Right. That is absolutely right. So the, 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 the lawyers representing healthcare system employers um, are absolutely mindful of those legal requirements and they know that the more that number goes up, the more risk that can come. Now, that said, the legal requirements talk about a fair market value range. And a range is just that, it's a range. And so that's that movement that can happen in there where it's still certainly legal and it's more about how much a party wants to, to pay for those type of services for that specialty. Um, and, and that's where you can, you know, really get into that negotiation phase where you're certainly seeing uh, that other systems might value it greatly. And, you know, that may be something you want to try to, to, to negotiate around. So if an employer says, I can't legally negotiate your range at all, or I can't negotiate your salary at all, it has to be this dollar amount, you might want to take that with a grain of salt as well. I think so. I would certainly question that. I um, um, do know there are circumstances where a physician will be told the number has to be this and it can't be more because of the legal requirements, that's not quite an accurate reflection. Um, it may be that that's what number they'd like to pay and they really don't have administrative or business approval to do more, um, but that's different than saying the law requires it to be at that number. So one of the things that we encounter more and more is we're moving to these compensation structures that are based on metrics. They can be quality, they can be efficiency, they can be productivity, and making sure that both sides are in agreement as to how that will be measured seems really important. Will you have access to the data? What are the definitions that are going to be applied so that you don't think you're going to be getting X and you're getting Y when you get that paycheck. That is very, very true. And that is certainly the trend. I mean, the trend has been to do quality metrics, performance metrics. And frankly, the government has also been drivers of that. Right. They've this been, is where healthcare is going, right? Absolutely. Medicare is moving in that direction. Um, and so it's not unusual or surprising that employers in healthcare are moving in that direction, too. It does get a lot more complex because there are a lot more of uh, contingencies that have to be satisfied before payment uh, occurs. You, you raised some of the most common ones that can become tripping points. What if the data's bad? Mm -hmm. What if the data can't actually be reliably obtained? Who takes responsibility for that? Should that be the physician's 
problem, even though the data might be under the control of the employer or not. These are the kinds of issues that if you get into a performance metric, um, uh, you know, compensation system, understanding the details is critical. How do those tend to get resolved? Is there a third party that can be used as kind of a screening? Is it the medical staff? I mean, a physician's not going to sit there and crunch a bunch of hospital data to see if they're getting paid the right amount. That, that's exactly right. It really is um, most often the data crunching, that work gets done by the employer. The question really becomes, how does the physician have an opportunity to verify that and make sure that data is accurate? And oftentimes that is something that can be negotiated, disclosure of the report. Um, and ultimately for a physician or even a group of physicians, if, if they're all subjected to the same requirements, they may want to have provisions that allow them to go out and get a third party auditor. And we do see that some, in some cases. If it just seems wildly off and we better have somebody else take a look. Right, and so that, but, but what's important contractually about that, John, and you pointed this out is, do you have the right to access right. that data? You got to make sure that you're in a position to do so. What about that physician, especially this is an issue when you're first coming out of residency. I just have no idea if what I'm being offered is fair. If it's within that fair market value range and I can do some Googling, but I really don't know if I can trust the information I'm getting. How can they assess whether the offer they're getting is the right amount? Um, there are a number of potential sources of information to at least get some general guides around that, whether what they're being offered is fair. For a lot of um, specialty areas where there's associations that may be really looking out on behalf of uh, physicians generally, or the specialty in particular, they may have access to information and data and be able to provide that kind of a resource. It's one of the reasons that I think for physicians, understanding the associations that are there for you to provide a resource, a guide, those association memberships, which may be easy to set to the side because you have those big student loans to pay, I would never set them aside. Or get them included in your employment contract or be the other option. Absolutely. Have those as resources to you. And, and again, they, that can be a, a resource. There's a number of um, professional uh, um, organizations out there that actually are in the business primarily of providing that kind of data to the large employers. The, um, and so that data is out there, it exists. You can get a sense of, of what fair market value range looks like in your geography for your specialty area. And I'd always seek that information out before assuming that the number is within that range. Yeah, and that's an important one because whether it's talking to an attorney who sees a bunch of these so they kind of just have a feel for it, or you're talking to a consultant who this is what they do or has access to that that same or similar data that employers use, if you think about it, let's say it's going to cost even a couple thousand dollars, but it's going to make a difference of a couple tens of thousand dollars in your compensation structure, that's money well spent. Absolutely. It's hard to justify at the front end, but it's not hard once you start getting paid. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and for many physicians uh, that are particularly on the front end and maybe looking at their first position, they may have opportunities with multiple employers. And you'll get a sense as you start to see some of those potential job offers come across 
where there might be a wide variety in compensation. It might be driven by geography. Are you in a large urban setting? Are you in a rural setting? Are you in an area where the, the specialty area is in such high demand that it um, you know, drives up the market value for those particular services? Those are all factors that can come in uh, to play relative to the compensation level. So as we're wrapping up here, Tom, I'm thinking through some of the major themes we've talked about. We've talked about making sure, first of all, and it's not surprising, read and understand your contract. Don't just blow it off. Absolutely. That's got to be number one. Number two, do your due diligence before you get the contract and after you get it and before you sign it, right? Understand who you're signing up with and what your job's going to be like. Ask a ton of questions once you get that contract as well. I think it reflects well on the physician, and I think it, it makes for a, a better outcome on the contract side as well. Um, number three, think about the breakup, right? Um, Absolutely. The, the time to think about your divorce is when you're getting engaged. Now, we're not marriage counselors, so you know don't take that with uh, much credence. But when it comes to the employment contract relationship, thinking about the details of termination can make a big difference in your long-term career prospects. I think that's absolutely true and, and is supported by the concept of the number of different positions that most individuals will hold through their lives now. Um, it is uh, almost an assured conclusion that you will change jobs at least once and understanding that and how that's going to look and that it's you are positioned well for that to be able to occur whether it's by, at initiation by the physician or the employer, is very wise. Absolutely. It's for both sides, and it's per, for protection of you, not just to hold you there. Correct. Uh, and, and the last one that I have down, at least, is if you have concerns, if you have questions, get help. Do your research. Talk to, you know, the medical society has helped or is in the process of setting up a structure to help you get that, um, that assistance, maybe at a lower cost. But uh, we have a lot of experienced attorneys in the state, whether it be you or others, that are happy to help. I'm happy to help. The Medical Society is a great resource. But um, you don't have to go it on your own if you feel in any way uncomfortable, and don't be afraid to pick up the phone. I think that's absolutely true. And, and know that there are uh, resources like the Medical Society um, that can be a guide in terms of things like this to be thinking of whether it's a guide to other resources, those are guidance and, and assistance that you can get from other individuals who are in this industry. I oftentimes do hear stories of the, the uh, second cousin, third removed, who may not be at all in this industry, and, and folks are bouncing that off, and they may have some really good feedback, but they're not in the industry. And they're not working in the industry, which means they're going to be less familiar by their the very nature um, with with what may be typical or standard or concerning. So look to the resources that are right there in front of you. And in particular, I'd say a great starting point is the Wisconsin Medical Society. Well, Tom, we really appreciate that. And thanks for taking the time to talk through some of these issues with us. Really hope that it's been informative. That will wrap up this episode of WISMED on Call. Thanks to the Wisconsin Medical Society Foundation and the Wisconsin Medical Society Insurance and Financial Services, your partners for life. If you liked what you heard, visit our website, www.wisconsinmedicalsociety.org, and look for future episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have suggestions or feedback, 
send an email to communications at wismed.org. Thanks for listening.